feral suits, or how to explain holes to a dead archive. Display reference T07441. Artist, Joseph Boys, 1921 to 1986. Title, Felt Suit, 1970. Original title, Filtsanzuk. Medium, Felt. Dimensions, Unconfirmed. Collection, Tate. Acquisition, Purchased 1998. Description. Felt suit, 1970, is a two-piece suit comprising a jacket and a pair of trousers made from coarse grey felt. It is number 87 in an edition of 100 identical suits, all produced in the same year by the artist Joseph Boyce. This exhibit appears hanging from a wooden coat hanger, although the artist has stated that, that work can be displayed in any way. More precisely, when asked in an interview how the work should be displayed, Boyce answered, I don't give a damn. You can nail the suit to the wall. You can also hang it on a hanger, ad libitum. But you can also wear it or throw it into a chest. And in the chest, it ended up all right one time. And that's the end by which another story begins. And so it goes. The first time that I saw the suit was at the Tate Modern, I was a schoolchild studying art O-level and on a school trip to London. It was near the pile of bricks. Do you remember the pile of bricks? It's called Equivalent 8 and is by Carl Andre. I didn't feel the anger of the public and media in 1976. In fact, I didn't feel much. I was much more taken with the curious suit hanging so high up on the wall. The position is an interesting collaboration. Boys offered freedom of choice in display of his felt suits, even wearing them, although felt misshapes very quickly when worn. So the positioning so high up feels itself like an adaptation, an additional authorial semiotic to be read as significant rather than just to keep this work away from the anger of the public. It didn't make me angry, however. I quite fancied a suit like that and I liked its altitude. It reminds me of an angel in a Vin Vendors movie. In 1981, the Tate acquired one edition of the work, placed it in storage, and when it was requested for display in 1989, conservators discovered the material had disintegrated due to a moth infestation. Unable to save or restore the suit at the time, conservators placed it in permanent storage where it can no longer be seen touched, felt. However, two more editions of the suit were eventually acquired by the gallery, one of them hanging in there, not too distant from you. Look, there's something in the air. Do you feel it? Can it be felt? Get closer. 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 Suit yourself. Making space for this felt sense here and there, elsewhere, might illuminate what is at stake in thinking about the contemporary pluralities of the work of art. In this sense, its ubiquity does not cast a shadow over the artifact's aura, the term used by Walter Benjamin to mean the artwork's 
present in time and space, its unique existence at the place where it happens to be. On the contrary, it bears directly upon an act of illumination, inflecting the ways by which we humanly scrutinize an object's life, which flows not only after our thoughts and visions, but the very possibility of an after, an afterlife. Yes, you're right. As a teenager, it felt lit up to me, like a crucifixion. Well, part of this ongoing vitality is intimately connected with the possibility and imagination of radical transformations, indeed, of the shape of things and their futurity. It reimagines a present that does not exclude non-human others, according to the figure of man, aiming to make things otherwise thinkable and livable, holding multiple actual worlds. The suit displayed at the Tate is number 87 out of 100 identical felt suits. And the other one is in a box. A box. An environment of assumed stasis and inertia. A container of death and stillness, perhaps. A coffin, actually. It reminds me of my father's words. It's not the coffin that carries you off, but the coffin they carry you off in. The assumption of stasis and inertia, re-emphasised in the manner of the Tate suit's usual display, usually high on the gallery wall on a wooden clothes hanger, is critiqued by the art action of a humble moth that ate the suit residing in its box. Death is not inertia, since what follows is always entropy, and this is the slow burn of many of Boy's materials. Iron, lard, straw... Wax, bone, felt, a dead hair. We want to make such things static. We walk past such things without perceiving their entropic movement, assuming stasis wherein there is only a state of constant change. Is all art really action? Which brings us back to the silken wings of the hungry moth. The felt suit's stolen or fugitive life belongs to a mothly crew. This flattering creature's notoriously preferred dirty items in undisturbed places. Who are we to judge? The disruption-based ecology forced itself onto the garment, consistently finding new ways to survive. These woolly threads, once unraveled, suitably spun the felt into new directions. Transversing and weaving together in human relations and patchy occurrences, this creature's distinctive work is committed to the flourishing of inhuman life, which can open our eyes and ears to their mastery over the art. Boys was always antagonising the separation of art with domesticity, of artist and all people. Jeden Mensch ein Kunstler. The clothes moth epitomizes that. It lives in the wardrobes, emphasizing for us with its surprising holes that time has moved on. Our material world returns to emptiness and memory, and slowly the mausoleum of the wardrobe empties itself. Time moves on. The moth creates a silk sleeping bag from its luncheon. It transforms low-value substance to high-value like a miniature alchemist. It does not understand intrinsic value, 
value that inhabits an artwork because of its provenance and process. How did the moth gain ingress to Boy's suit? Perhaps as a stowaway aboard the pockets and lapels of the curator. An unfair accusation. Perhaps it flew to the Tate, entered via the reception and viewed the exhibitions. It's possible. Perhaps it entered like an art thief in a movie, shimmying along the air-conditioning ducts. That feels likely. It should have a soundtrack then. I'll think of one. Is the moth's work an act of violence and dispossession? A common occupation that threatens appropriation, even annihilation? Or is this perhaps an exemplary instance of decolonial praxis beyond this restrictive conceptions of private property, illuminating alternative ways of inhabiting the work of art? Or is this a solely human undoing of felt and local meshworks fostered by, fostered by the will of conservation by way of fumigation? These intersecting dispossessions may coalesce in what philosopher and poet Fred Motum calls the resistance of the object or the possibility that the suit has felt in its hollow chest a refusal to be refused. More pointedly, Motum sounds the political quality of this afterlife, and I quote, Life, which has been stolen, steals away in this refusal in a range of insurgencies that, insofar as they call regulation into question, can be said to anticipate its beginning and its end. Felt suits resist collection. The life stolen for themselves in search of mutability and possibilities of living outside the human caste. The art is felt becoming edible in symbiotic associations with mouldy natures, ubiquitous in their motley cruising within unstable cultures. Oh my gosh, you're reminding me of Adorno's observation that the word museum derives from mausoleum, a place of death and disconnection. Doris Bravo annotated Douglas Crimp's expansion of that, which was called On the Museum's Ruins, characterising artworks as nesting in a nest. I like that better, and I think it's attractive for our moth. Also, the suit is felt, but there has remained conjecture about whether it's really made from rabbit or hair fur, as true felt is. The moths have provided us with an excellent affirmation. Cloves moths feed exclusively on animal fibres, and in becoming consumers of art, they have provided us a crucial material insight into Boy's process, his truth to materials, and his fascination with leporadae. The suit has leapt through the meadow. This object asserts itself as material and transparent reality, as emancipated thing connecting feral patchworks in the story of a changed relationship to the human aspect. They perform an, an afterlife that can be understood as the relation between different scales of existence, of unexpected returns and constantly missed encounters. In his essay, The Task of the Translator, written in 1921, Walter Benjamin asks, isn't the afterlife of works of art far easier to recognize than that of living creatures? For Benjamin, it is through the vital work of translation that, and I quote, the life of the originals attains its latest, continually renewed, and most complete unfolding. 
Ultimately, translation serves the purpose of manifesting the intensive form of a relation that, and I quote, all purposeful manifestations of life, including their very purposiveness, in the final analysis have their end not in life, but the, in the expression of its nature. Felt suits translate and transmit the special kinship between life and its multiple ends. Their ongoing liveness performs the contingent materiality of untethered encounters, which, if completely lost to us, are certainly entirely alive. This spoiled scene invites humans into a circular dance of constant twins, twists and turns between states in animation. Fred Moten uses the term inter-inanimation to suggest the ways intermedia arts of mechanical and technological reproduction translate, transrelate, cross-contaminate and improvise each other. This syncopated vitality can be felt as the commodity's animation, which in the end suits precisely, and I quote, that transference, a carrying or crossing over, that takes place on the bridge of lost matter, that inter-inanimates the body and its ephemeral, if, if productive, force, that inter-articulates the performance and the reproductive reproduction it always already contains. The animateriality of the work of art performs the social afterlives of alternative and perhaps illicit feral proliferations. This more-than-human social relations change the status of a unique work, whilst not entirely rejecting the magic aura by which objects become value, fetishes, idols and totems. Felt suit gives up its singular identity, well, one in a hundred, to have affairs with the materiality of ruins and leftovers, fragments, rotting remains and traces that prevent the emergence of a stable and solid human, white, western relationship with the object. The felt matter of suits itself become a source of trouble matter, fine and finite in its lifetimes in human undoing of the solely human and its capital. In a way, the felt imbricates itself with a feral world that suits itself, if for fleeting moments, in the break of inhuman sociality. This fugitive erotics speaks of a desire to flee a world that would rather confine it to the hollow chest, the archive of social death. Instead, all that is felt relaxes into the mouldy, mothly, crevices of erasures and finds new, other life. Opening itself to this contact, a non-human contract, finds a more generative way of being creative to resist refusal. Moths are the good maggots. Maggots are the bad maggots. The reason for this has to do with our distaste with the wetness of rot and our comfort with the dryness of dust. Moths belong to the kingdom of dust. Indeed, we handle their fragility with care lest a transference of their own dust renders them incapable of flight. But our attitudes to moths and maggots has also to do with a sense of mortality. Moths eat that which is shed without pain or mortal threat, hair, fur and wool. We have already masticated the food on behalf of the deer moth through a process known as carding. Carding cleans the fibres and thrashes them into alignment. 
The huge carding machines of the Industrial Revolution became infamous for mill accidents and worker deaths. Unlike moths, maggots, however, eat the flesh. They eat the mortally crucial, and they do not wait for their feast to be prepared. Maggots like the warm, moths prefer the cool. Moths are rather more standoffish, shy. They will not be watched eating. Maggots talk with their mouths full, they fidget, and they remain at the meal with a blatancy. But both eat and transform the material back into its universal state of entropy. And what did Hamlet say? A man may fish with the worm that have eat of a king, and eat of the fish that have fed of that worm. But maggots leave an incomplete absence, whereas moths are more precise. They leave holes. There must indeed have been 4,000 holes in Blackburn, Lancashire, once the textile capital of the world. You can sometimes still find their work of art in the outskirts, where standard classifications and human forms of regulation are not predominant. Kitchen closets and wardrobes, wool rags and stuffed furniture against a bathroom light fitting or sticking to your screen door on a summer night. Outside the art gallery, outside the logic of value, those examples of are hard to see, grasp and exploit. They have broken out. An interesting surge and what we may find are small gems, germs of life, in the form of small cracks of twists and turns. However, in the end, which is not one, there is actually a different feeling through it, and indeed, it wants to be felt. Try it, with care. It might suit you too. What finally remains is dust. Our moth is an angel of dust. If we can hang in there a little longer, we shall walk out together on the gentle notes of a song about dust. Yes, it's by Steve Winwood, and it's our moth's soundtrack. But do excuse the grain of my voice in singing. I do actually suffer from a dust allergy. Time may call the universal healer But you're back Every free day settling all around me A feather dust is no substitute for the real thing And the dust you left behind Is settling still With you don't ever taste it so good Swept up like the debris on a Saturday night. Did we ever have fun? And the dust, the gentle legacy you left behind is falling softly on my mind. Dust the timeless memory of you I love you I do for all the little things you do And I guess I always will The dust 
settles again to remind me still of memories I've cherished so long. Thank you.